Thank you for downloading the Aging Matters podcast. To find out more about how Transitions Life Care is providing care and comfort for life's changing needs, visit transitionslifecare.org. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Good afternoon to you. I am Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett representing Transitions Life Care and Transitions Guiding Lights. Nicole, we made it to November. How are you doing? Oh, man. I mean, I'm starting to feel like we have put in an entire decade's worth of news into, you know, 10 <laughs> months of time because this is this is getting to be a wild ride for, well, it was already a wild ride for 2020, but overall, I'm doing well. I'm happy, you know, for my health and the health of my family and just, um, yeah. Just, just kind of looking at the big picture of life. So, doing okay. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. You know, we're uh, we're here, and that's that's the most <laughs> important part, Nicole. You know, I love doing this show with you. It's we always learn something new, and we're doing something for the first time tonight or today, Nicole. We're going to have three guests here on the line as we're going to be discussing the Heart Failure Initiative, and you know, November is National Home Care, Hospice, and Palliative Care Month, and we thought we'd bring in some friends uh, who are represented by Transitions Life Care and also Rex to speak on the Heart Failure Initiative. We've brought on, again, these three guests. We have Dr. Josh Dowd, he's a hospice and palliative care, palliative medicine physician at Transitions Life Care. We have Chris Rowe, palliative care nurse at Transitions, and also Dr. Elizabeth Foles, congestive heart failure cardiologist at the Rex Heart Failure Clinic. Yeah, wow, what an amazing lineup. I'm super excited. This is way more interesting. A than lot of brain power yes, on the line yes. here. I like, I like a panel like this. I think a panel like this could like really <laughs> give us like, true election results. You know, I just feel like they, they would be more in the know <laughs> than checking on a poll. So, um, but yeah, so excited to talk about all of you. You know, we all know that heart failure is really one of the leading causes of uh, death in older adults in, in the United States and definitely one of the top chronic conditions that face Americans. And so I'm really interested to hear about the work around the heart failure initiative that's out of the Rex UNC uh, Heart Clinic. And I just thought maybe we would start with Dr. Dowd, just kind of talking to us a little bit about sort of the big picture of this program and really how this was set up and why. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Nicole and Jason. And I wish I could deliver on the on the hope for election results, but I don't think I could do that for you. Um, so talking about this program, it, it really started uh, back in early 2019 as a pilot program uh, with a partnership between Transitions Life Care and the Rex Heart Failure Clinic uh, that was funded through a Rex Community Grant Um and really what, what the idea behind it was, was to provide some extra help at home for patients in the Rex Heart Failure Clinic that were dealing with advanced heart failure. And I think a, a big reason for wanting to create a program like this is uh, there isn't really a great way for a lot of people to get extra support at home that are dealing with advanced heart failure. I think one of the most robust ways that people can get extra support at home is with hospice care, which which people can be pretty familiar with. However, for a lot of patients with advanced heart failure, even if they qualify for hospice, 
uh, given their medical condition, it may not necessarily be in line with their goals or their hopes at that time, or they might be on heart failure specific treatments that wouldn't necessarily be supported by hospice with the current system that we have. So with this program, you have a way to get people additional support with weekly nurse visits, uh, social work support, collaboration with the heart failure clinic, all of those things wouldn't happen without this program. And hopefully, you know, the goal behind a program like this with this additional support is that it's leading to improved quality of life for people that are dealing with advanced heart failure, uh, reduced hospital utilization, and hopefully a better chance at providing goal concordant care uh, by helping people discuss and complete advanced directives. So I think that's really what was at the heart of, of coming up with a program like this to provide additional support. Well, that sounds pretty phenomenal. And um, I'm sure that you've had some pretty amazing results uh, for this program. But before we get into that, I would really be interested to hear a little bit more about sort of the boots on the ground perspective and and what it, you know, sort of how uh, patients and and providers interact and and what the experience is like for individuals that are in that are part of this program. Yeah, so I can uh, step in with this as well. Um, you know, from uh, as Dr. Dowd was saying, you know, the initiative started by uh, building this alliance between the Rex Heart Failure Clinic and Transitions. And so the Rex Heart Failure Clinic, there's two physicians, myself and my partner, Dr. Chen. And uh, unfortunately, with heart failure, there is no cure uh, for most of these patients. And it takes a lot of effort to help them improve their quality of life and even their quantity of life. And so by partnering with the Transitions Life Care, uh, we identify patients either in our clinic or in the hospital that would benefit from their services. And we have a close relationship where we kind of speak directly with uh, Chris Rowe. Uh, we identify these patients. And from our perspective, we often can lead the conversation. So we know from the interactions that we've had thus far with them in the clinic or in the hospital, like where are their mindset? Where are their patients and their families in terms of acceptance? the diagnosis, the prognosis. But the thing that I think we've gotten the most feedback from from patients and families that have participated in the program is to have an individual from transitions like Chris go to the home and see the patient and the family in the home setting is something that we can't achieve by just talking to them in the clinic or in the hospital, that they can really get a sense of the dynamics of the relationships in the home, what resources, uh, what kind of materials like a hospital bed or a a commode or other things might help the patient. And a lot of this is just also, you know, a lot of patients would prefer to be at home and not be in the hospital. And, And this program really kind of helps us figure out on the ground how to keep the patient in the, in their home um, as long as possible and hopefully with limited symptoms. So talk to us a little bit more about that, Chris. What has your experience been as the program coordinator? So as a program coordinator and as well as uh, being one of the nurses that goes into the home and sees these patients, it's been absolutely wonderful. Uh, I have an experience with uh, being a nurse for several years, most of it in the hospital, and one of the frustrations I I experience in the hospital is seeing patients coming back in and back in and back in, discharging them uh, with written instructions and uh, not knowing what's going to happen when they hit the ground. Uh, The beauty of this program is we actually get to go at the pleasure of UNC Rex to go into these patients' homes with some uh, already some background, like Dr. Volt said, uh, where these patients are, and we get to extend on that. 
and when I say extend on that, we get to develop, to develop a relationship with these patients because we're seeing them uh, week in and week out, either in, in person or we have a telehealth system that we in, uh, implement into their homes and we can engage with them that way. Um, we do a lot of care coordination with them. We do a lot of symptom monitoring and mitigation. Uh, we do a full medicine reconciliation uh, and help them manage their medications. And most importantly, we work with them in their home setting, home environment, and we look for barriers to care, uh, uh, barriers to good health that way. And it may be psychosocial, maybe economic, it, it may be educational variety. Um, but uh, all of this with the with the uh, overarching framework of getting the patient to where to achieve their goals and identifying their goals, articulating their goals, and helping them achieve their goals. So, so Dr. Voltz, talk to us a little bit about how this has actually been beneficial to, uh, to the to the heart clinic that you are part of. Yeah, I think it's been beneficial on a, a number of ways. I think, uh, you know, we've uh, been able to run the data and find that uh, we drew, we truly do make an impact on uh, decreasing hospitalizations or rehospitalization rates. So these patients that have already been in the hospital and have a high risk of return, probably a 50% chance in the, in the next uh, 30 to 90 days that they're able to stay in their homes because they have access to uh, better care in their homes. Um, so that impacts, I think, the quality of life uh, for the patient, as well as kind of the impact it has on the hospital itself. And then we've also found that um, it, many patients, we initiate uh, conversations regarding their goals. So things like uh, resuscitative efforts, or if uh, they want to return to the hospital, or if they want to stay at home. And we've found that uh, we are able to start those conversations in all patients. And for the majority of patients, we're able to complete those conversations with the interactions that we have as the heart failure providers and that Transitions has in the home. So we can, because a lot of times we have time constraints, you know, when we're in the hospital rounding on patients or when we're in the clinic and we have a, a 30 minute time slot, it's difficult to really have these in-depth conversations about what it means to be near the end of life. And so having this contact point where Chris is able to go to the home or we're able to continue telehealth visits or visits in the, in the congestive heart failure clinic, over time, these discussions evolve and we're able to kind of come to agreements or come to conclusions about where the uh, patient's goals of care are. So I think we've had a, um, a lot of impact in, in that we can measure it in different ways, but I think the biggest impact that we've seen from our practice is the feedback that we get from patients and particularly family members about having an uh, extra set of hands at home or having more people that can spend time with them and really talk about these issues and, and talk about what's meaningful and impactful to them. We love seeing positive impacts like that on care. It's uh, wonderful to speak with all three of you. We really thank you for taking the time. We have Dr. Josh Dowd. He's hospice and palliative care medicine physician at Transitions Life Care. Chris Rowe, palliative care nurse at Transitions. And also Dr. Elizabeth Foles, congestive heart failure cardiologist at the Rex Heart Failure Clinic. If you want to find more information you know, all throughout the month as we uh, take notice of National Home Care Hospice and Palliative Care Month, be sure to go to transitionslifecare.org. So many resources available for you there and plenty of information as well. Transitionslifecare.org. 
aginghelp.org. We have to take a quick break, but we will be right back. Stick around. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Nicole Cleggett from Transitions Guiding Lights. Here's your host, Jason Kong. You are listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Good afternoon to you. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. And Nicole, as I said earlier, we've made it into November, but uh, that also means the holiday season is upon us. And uh, boy, you know, 2020 has has been quite a year. We're Mm -hmm. dealing with uh, a pandemic going on. And, you know, of course, that puts strain on us. And uh, we oftentimes on this show, when we get to this time of the year, we talk about grief, dealing with grief during the holidays. And I can only imagine that uh, COVID-19 has has just made things even more challenging for people who are dealing with grief at this time. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I'm, I'm definitely concerned about individuals who are going through grief. And, and even if it's, you know, something that was even uh, several years ago, especially during the time of the pandemic, when maybe in years past, you've had other family members rally around you and you'd come together for Thanksgiving or other holidays. And now this year, you know, for example, I can't even go visit my dad in upstate New York because our cases are so high in North Carolina without a two-week quarantine. So this we're coming up on almost a year and a half before I've even seen my own family. And imagine if I was going through a grieving process and I wanted to be around them to help me through a first holiday without a loved one. That, that would be terribly difficult. So I am so glad that we have uh, with us today uh, William Holloman with Duke uh, Home Care and Hospice and Infusion to talk to us about how we can handle grief around the holidays and then maybe even some insight on how we can get through grief around the holidays with the added unfortunate bonus of COVID. Yeah, and we're so happy to have William Holloman with us. He is the manager of Hospice Family Services at Duke Home Care and Hospice. William, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So talk to us a little bit about sort of what we traditionally see with individuals related to grief around the holidays and then maybe what we're anticipating. I know it's hard to anticipate anything in 2020, but what people may expect this year that might feel a little different. Okay. Be happy to talk a little bit about that. The uh, As you all have mentioned, COVID is going to add some dynamics to the season this year, the holiday season's coming up that is going to make things a little bit different for people who are grieving uh, as they're going through the holidays. Um, Holidays can have such a really rich association for us because of the ways that we've created the rituals around them to honor and celebrate and be together with each other. Um, Particularly this time of year, we, we look at the ways that families gather and recognize that people who have lost someone, whether it's a mo- or more recent loss or something that is more distant in time, the remembrance of those individuals is can be particularly acute during this period. And um, COVID is adding a dynamic to that, creating more isolation. Nicole, as you've described, can't even get up to New York to see your dad. Families are having to figure out ways to support each other and be together while respecting the need for 
social distancing within their own families and in the larger community. So I think the holidays. Can, I was going to say. Go I, I was going to say. I think sometimes you know when it comes around the holiday season, and and let's just say a spouse lost a parent, and you're kind of coming together, and now there's that place at the dining room table that's no longer filled by that individual. And I think sometimes people pretend like that never happened, or they they just don't say anything. And I think a lot of times it's because people don't know what to do and what to say, and they're even afraid to sometimes bring up the name of an individual for fear that that might make the person feel sad. What are some ways we can actually broach the loss of a loved one and the fact that everybody's feeling that loss, but they feel awkward about what to do? I thank you for the question. And the important piece here is to try to think about it earlier um, before the actual holiday events arrive and begin talking as a family about how you'd like to remember the person who has died and actually invite them into celebrations if that is something that family feels comfortable doing. Individuals need to be able to speak from their own experience and discuss what it is that they need. And very often, family members and friends will try to protect them from those feelings and say, oh, you really don't want to do that. You need to let that go. You don't want to bring the children down in this situation. Mm-hmm. And what, we, what I think is important is that children actually have an opportunity to witness grief as it is happening in the family and be a part of that discussion. Uh, They have some creative ideas about how they remember and would like to include that person um, in family celebrations. So some of the things could be um, creating a space at the table, um, using a picture as as place cards, looking at ways that that individual contributed both to the family and to the larger community and finding ways to contribute either skills or talents or services or even financially to support causes in the community that were important to that person. Um, The holiday rituals around the fireplace um, can include hanging a stocking for the person who died and inviting people to share memories right by writing them down and placing them in the stocking to be read at a later time. Um, creating um, memories with um, uh, paper loops and joining those loops together in a paper chain and adding the memories that each family member has. So lots of different ways to pull um, some memories together. And I think another thing that oftentimes happens, and I would probably put myself in this camp, but I just knowing knowing the way I operate in my mind, is feeling like you just have to do things the way you've always done it and not giving yourself permission to maybe do things differently for a year. You know, maybe you don't feel like putting up the Christmas tree this year, or maybe you don't, you know, the holiday can just look different. Maybe you go to the mountains instead that day, or maybe you just have a day where you, you know, just sit in your pajamas all day and... Uh, allowing yourself that opportunity to just have a different experience for a holiday. It doesn't mean it has to be like that forever, but maybe that's just what you need and not having to do things the way you feel like everybody else wants you to do them. People have a lot of expectations based on past experiences, and they believe that they've got to hold up to those expectations, both for themselves, the family, and realize that that creates a lot of tension internally, psychological tension, cognitive tension, even physical tension. And it's normal to believe 
and to decide that I can't do it this year. I have to do something different. It's too painful for me. I'm not going to put up a tree. I'm not going to decorate. I'm going to do something different by traveling somewhere else. That may be a little bit limited this year based <laughs> on the pandemic. Right. But just simply allowing yourself the opportunity to dismiss the holidays, if that's really what you need to do, um, and, and realize that this is temporary, it is for this season, and that things will change as the year progresses and a new holiday season approaches. And this can be actually true for any special day throughout the year, regardless of whether it's this holiday season or it involves summer holidays, plans, anniversaries, birthdays, anything important to families. In my experience working with bereavement counselors over the years, you know, one of the lessons learned by various interviews and things that I've done is that not everybody grieves the same, number one. It doesn't necessarily look like it looks in the movies where you throw yourself on somebody's grave or, or what have you. Um, and, and, and then number two, you may not grieve the same to, uh, for various different people that have passed in your lives. And sometimes I think people get surprised by a grief reaction for, you know, that they have over one person over another. And I think that's another thing that sometimes is unsettling for individuals, especially when something suddenly bubbles up around the holidays that they weren't expecting. You know, we can talk about a grief process as sort of a universal um, construct, and yet individuals are going to experience that process in their own unique ways. Our grief is specifically related to our relationship with the person who died. And so my experience of my mother's death and my experience of my father's death may be completely different emotional experiences for me. And it's important for people to be aware of that. And not only those intrapersonal experiences of loss, but interfamily uh, experiences. My children may not grieve the same way as I will. My parents may not grieve, grieve the same way as I will. So it's particularly important to recognize that the expression of grief within a family will be completely different, that people will, in the family will be at different places in their grief and be better able or less able to cope with a certain situation based on their own developmental level and coping skills. Yeah, that customization really goes a long way because everyone processes this differently. We are having a conversation with William Holloman. He's the manager of Hospice Family Services at Duke Home Care and Hospice, and we will continue our conversation right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care. Find more at transitionslifecare.org. Transitionslifecare.org. Org. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. Our guest on the line is William Holloman. He's manager of Hospice Family Services at Duke Home Care and Hospice, and we're having a conversation all about dealing with grief over the holidays, Nicole. And uh, I think it probably might be nice if we took a step back and 
sort of looked at the stages of grief. Yeah, you know, I, I hinted it in the last segment that, you know, there are typical stages. Not everybody goes through them necessarily in the order that um, William may give us in a moment, but I would suspect that most people touch on various stages at, at various different points in the grieving process. So would love to hear a little bit more about that and how we can unpack that for our listeners. I think that the two of you all have made some good points. When we talk about stages, folks will generally believe that there is a particular pattern that they will go through grief and they'll reach an end point. And I think it's important for folks to understand that there are certainly phases that we go through, an initial one being a sense of protest, um, usually occurring right at the time of death. I can't believe that this is happening, or I can't believe that this has happened. And that initial experience is one of um, of, uh, experiencing a sense of needing to be protected in some way, um, locating a sense of safety, um, because it's too much to bring on. So folks can call this denial, they're just in, someone's just in denial that this has happened, but it's more of a cognitive protective feature uh, than anything else. It just gives us an opportunity to take a step back, create some um, psychological and emotional safety, and then progress forward. It doesn't, I'm not intending to say that denial doesn't exist. Um, there are complications that do arise, and people do experience difficulty in accepting that a death has occurred. But overall, a sense of protest is one that characterizes this initial sense of loss. And I would, I guess, make an assumption, although I'm sure there are, um, you know, again, everybody's different. But I, I, would, I would imagine, you know, if it was a sudden car accident and it just was a, such a completely unexpected death of an individual. And, and you know, I, I would imagine that there, there's often that sense of, oh, my gosh, how could this have happened? I mean, I've seen it even on social media when someone suddenly passes away, that, that initial response that folks have. But I could also see it happening, you know, even if loss of a child or, you know, a beloved friend and it was maybe a longer illness, but still it's, you know, wow, you know, I just really can't believe that this really did happen. I thought, you know, they had nine lives and it was just, they were just going to continue to go on despite the fact they were facing a long-term illness. That's true. It can be a really universal experience. Even when a death is expected through a long-term chronic illness, the actual event of the death can catch people off guard and um, leave them with that sense of disbelief. I just stepped out of the room. How could this have happened? I was told to expect four to six months, and it's only been three weeks. So there are things that um, that that betray our our ability to understand what's happening in the moment. It just feels inconsistent to us. What's another step? We move beyond protest into a sense of uh, complete disorientation. Our, our identity is, is based in, in part to the relationships that we have with people in our environment, our family, our social network, our cultural and uh, religious um, organizations. And when we lose someone, we lose that reflection of ourselves. We, we don't know exactly who we are in relationships anymore, because that person has figured quite largely in how we see ourselves in the world. The other piece of this is that our assumptions that we make in life get turned upside down. And so we're trying to figure out 
how to be in a world in the absence of someone that we have loved for a period of time, whether it's a long time or a relatively short time. <clears throat> and the, what we see in these moments is a sort of a restlessness, a sense of disorientation. Um, we can be prone to um, decrease our socialization and begin to isolate. And this tends to overlap with that period of time when people are beginning to move on in their lives, in our social networks, and are not thinking as often about our loss and not asking specifically how we're doing, mm -hmm. or are afraid to ask because we're afraid, but they're afraid that uh, they may be bringing up an issue that we have moved beyond and don't want to create more pain for us. Yeah, and... So and people, it's sort of after the meal train ends, you know, all of the busyness around the funerals and all of that, and then you're just sort of left standing there. I know, you know, and I think I would imagine, you know, for individuals who are in a very significant caregiving role, that this really becomes an issue. I often talk to families about trying not to lose your sense of self while you're providing care for a loved one. And it's really hard to not make that care for a loved one your complete and total identity. Speaking personally, you know, I was caregiving very deeply for my grandfather for a number of months before he passed. And I remember after he passed, I mean, and I had a two-year-old and an infant at the time, and I still felt like I had hours of a day that I didn't know what I was going to do with. And clearly, there were plenty of things I could have filled my time with, but it just felt like like there was this void and wow, what did I do with this time before I was caring for my grandfather? And I really had to sort of reinvent, reinvent myself and kind of what I was going to do with that space. That's very true. We, we develop roles around our caregiving and those can become um, quite predominant in how we view ourselves and losing that role identity can add to the significant losses that we've, we've had. Um, very often there are very stark memories that are associated with caregiving, particularly as um, the end of life approaches. And those images begin to imprint themselves a little bit more um, dominantly in our thinking. Um, we have to be able to sort through those memories and experiences. And the energy of that, the energy it takes, both emotionally and physically, can be exhausting. And that can also lead to that sense of isolation. I, I, I know that I am using up all of my friendships by talking about these experiences. Folks don't know what to say to me. And so I think I just need to not talk about it anymore. So what, what's another stage of grief that often people face at one point or another? You know, these, these phases of grief tend to move um, both forward and backward. Um, we can... When we recognize a secondary loss, such as the loss of a role, we can easily drift back into the I can't believe it. But at the same time, that's uh, something that we recognize and understand and realize that we can move through that. So progressing forward means moving into a sense of um, reorienting ourselves to the world, creating a sense of stability. Um, finding ways to involve our deceased loved ones in realistic memories, um, returning to a previous level of functioning, being able to be more uh, confident in being out in the world and not being afraid that we may break down into tears, or accepting the fact that tears are just going to be a natural part of this progression. 
may renew old friendships that have been lost, may develop new ones. And it's the self-image that really begins to evolve and develop at this time. You know, people are finding ways to be more accomplished and feeling successful, more successful as they move in through this period of time. They experience hope, um, but there's also the pain of remembering and that sense of, I can't believe that I have made it this far, but I can't believe that I have lost this loved one. So there's some apprehension that goes along with this. So, William, I know that at, at Duke uh, Home Care and Hospice, you are all working diligently on creating opportunities for folks to process grief around the holidays this year, especially amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you talk to us a little bit about what you're trying to do and how folks could get more information? Sure. We, are, we have several different events coming up. One of them is a family event that is built around the concept of our camp release and it is called Holiday Relief at Home. It will be a virtual opportunity for families to get together um, and join us for discussions about how families can move through the holidays and and develop creative ways of remembering the person who died. And that will be on Thursday, December 3rd at 6.30. There are also a couple there are also a couple of other um, adult, more adult-related uh, opportunities. They are called Grieving Through the Holidays. And one is done in connection with our, uh, com- uh, our um, support group, uh, Growing Through Grief. Uh, it is also going to be a Zoom opportunity. That's going to be on November 17th. And then the same workshop will be held on November 30th. Both of these, all of these are open to community members as well as to our hospice families. That's wonderful. That's a wonderful resource that folks can find more information about. If you want to Google Duke Home Care and Hospice, you can find more information about those events. We want to thank William Holloman, Manager of Hospice Family Services at Duke Home Care and Hospice for his time. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care. Hey, don't forget that you can still register for the Caregiver Summit, the virtual Caregiver Summit, by going to caregiversummit.com. You can also find it uh, at WPTF.com. Just find the Aging Matters page, and there's a nice big link there that'll take you to the Caregiver Summit page. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett, and we're going to now shift our focus on adult day services and adult daycare services. And to do that, we've brought in Michael Bowles. He is the Director of Adult Day Services for Resources for Seniors. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Well, thank you, Jason and Nicole. Glad to be here. Oh, my gosh. So adult daycare is one of my very favorite things to talk about, one of uh, the senior industry's best-kept secrets. And I wish it wasn't a secret. Um, I wish more and more people knew about the incredible service that adult daycare offers our community. And hopefully you can shed a little light on that for us, Michael, today. Well, I'm hoping to do that. You, you stole one of my lines there with the um, best-kept secrets, because that's that's always been something I've heard forever is the adult daycare services is one of the best kept secrets in long-term care and people just aren't really aware that it is an option that it is part of the continuum that we have within the aging network you know because we have our senior centers and in-home aid assist living nursing homes everything is out there and then there's this adult day services and a lot of people don't understand that continuum can be very fluid right that, that somebody may be doing perfectly fine and then all of a sudden they need a service and then they'll recover and then they don't need whatever that service was and homemade or adult day services and they go back to their senior center or, or whatever it is but there is this definite extra place for us with adult day yes Jason. so talk to us a little bit about what an adult daycare center is sure so an adult day service is a provision of care and supervision within a group format. It is in some place that is not the person's home. It has to be less than 24 hours. And it's for people who may have more cognitive or physical um, disabilities and that need some supervision and care. So here in North Carolina, the adult day services are certified by the state through the Division of Aging and Adult Services. They have to be open five days. There's a variety of different rules that have to provide different kinds of programs and nutritious meals and referral assistance and a really good solid staffing ratio for care that's being provided. And we're able to serve a whole wide variety of people. So what kind of became started off as being supervised social outlet for adults that were semi-dependent and just a little bit of a break for caregivers now can be an alternative for long-term care. Um, and so, you know, what we have found over the years is that people who do find out about adult day and do take advantage of the service earlier, they can they can stay in this program for a long time. And the other big piece I think that people really need to know, well, a couple of things. Um, I, I know sometimes people are very familiar with in-home care, and, and that definitely serves its purpose. And I, I do believe that that is a great service for our community. Adult daycare, though, allows that individual to have increased socialization. They're able to be among their peers. They're able to build friendships and bonds with people that are similar to them, number one. Number two, um, it tends to be a lot more cost effective than paying for in-home care services. And sometimes people are doing both, right? Sometimes they have somebody there in the home to get them up and dressed, and then they'll drive that individual to the adult day service, and then that person will be there for the day, and then then that aid will pick them up and take them home and then continue to provide the care. So there's a whole you know, different way that we can really blend this. As, as you said, it can, also, it can really replace the need for some of these long-term care placements when what a person really needs is some socialization, some supervision, some medication management, some nutritious meals, and then overall safety oversight. And when you put those two things together, you know, sometimes that person is able to age in place in their home longer than if they didn't have something like adult daycare services in place in the first place. Exactly. And and that is a lot, that, that is definitely what I was going to be saying as well, that, you know, you know, why choose an adult day service? Well, I think you hit on one of my favorite parts in what you were saying, and that is it is a place to belong with like peers. 
there's so many times that with with the population we most typically take care of and that this is an aging adult who is living with their adult child now so they they no longer have their own home they may have a place within their child adult child's home but that they don't have exactly what is theirs anymore and so the adult day service provides for them a place that they can that's theirs they belong and they have that socialization with like peers and since we can serve such a wide variety of people and age groups and different types of diagnoses at the adult day services, there is always someone that you have something in common with. Now, whether that is, you know, your uh, your beliefs, your your culture, your um, your diagnosis, even um, you know, people who. It's always amazing to watch people who have had, say, like a stroke and how they then find a friend at the adult day service who's also had a stroke and it may have affected them in different ways, but they become partners. They become friends. They support each other in a way that you don't get if you're just sitting at home. Well, and I think the other piece, too, is the incredible usefulness of caregiver respite. And I think about this, and I think about this in my own life. You know, I have, I've been a family caregiver years ago. I haven't been in that role for a bit of time now. But, you know, I still have three children at home. And I will tell you, um, you know, it it would be, you know, okay, fine, I have a caregiver coming in, and I can leave my home, like, babysitter, right? And I can go out and have Mm -hmm. dinner, or the days we could go out and have dinner, but. Let's pretend it's not COVID times anymore. But there is something to be said when you can have your home to yourself. When when the when the three kids love them dearly, but when the three kids are all playing at friends' houses or something like that, and I have a period of a few hours where it could just be me in my house doing whatever I want and not having to care for anybody. And that is where you get wind put in your sails as a family caregiver when you can actually have your loved one go to a place that's safe that you know they're going to enjoy and that they're going to be cared for. And maybe even the healthcare professionals will notice some changes or make some suggestions about how you can make care easier for you. And then you can get that wind back in your sails. I mean, you could be sitting in your in your home in your pajamas all day, and it just doesn't matter. If that's what you want to do with that time, you have that time to do whatever you want, and you don't have to be out going somewhere. You can just be there at home and, and relaxing. Exactly. So you know, it's different for each individual person. Um, for some of our caregivers, it's that ability to get on with their own life mm-hmm. and have that break that they need. Go for to work. The ability to c- yeah. continue to go to work. Mm-hmm. They can balance their life and responsibilities, like you were talking about with ki- children, because we do have a lot of caregivers now that are serving their older family parent and then also their own children, and they're in the, what they call a sandwich generation, where they're trying to balance their life and their responsibilities of caregiving along with work. Uh, and then it's just also those that just absolutely love caregiving, love doing it, love being with their with their person, and yet they know that they still need that break to recharge their batteries, and they want to trust that person as somebody who is going to be looking after the individual, that is going to be able to assist them with their their activities of daily living, that, that you know, with their eating or toileting or whatever is needed, that you know they are going to be taken care of, that they're going to be in a place where there's people who are trained, and that if something does go wrong, there's people there to handle it. And that's, you know, another big advantage of the adult day services is that there is that peace of mind. There's that total break that you can have during that day. And at the same time, 
you know that your loved one's in a place where they're going to be with people who understand them. They're going to be with friends. They're going to be in a safe environment. They're going to have some structured activities, which is really very necessary for people who have some cognitive impairment, maybe from memory loss, or have had gone through lots of different transitions. And this gives them a sense of security and base where they have this place to go and these and specific activities that are designed to try to help maintain some of those physical, cognitive, and, and social skills that we may start losing over time. It's a, a level of comfort and a wonderful resource for anyone who may be a caregiver. He is Michael Bowles, the Director of Adult Day Services at Resources for Seniors. Michael, is resourcesforseniors.com the best place for folks to go to find out more information? Yes, most definitely, because we have information for a wide variety of different services at resourcesforseniors.com because it is a council on aging and it is one of the main referral sources for Wake County and definitely a place to go and get information. Excellent. Again, resourcesforseniors.com. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the program. We are out of time for today. On behalf of Nicole Cleggett, I'm Jason Kong, thanking you for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.